Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. So I'm here with Professor Dwayne Rohr. He's an American archaeologist, author, and professor emeritus of classics, Greek, and Latin at The Ohio State University. He has a PhD in classical archaeology from Harvard University, and he's the author of more than 200 scholarly articles and 14 books, including Cleopatra, a biography, Ancient Geography, the Discovery of the World in Classical Greece and Rome, and most recently, Empire of the Black Sea, the Rise and Fall of the Mithridatic World, which came out just last year in 2020. And that's going to be uh, the main focus of our conversation today. So. Um, okay, so Professor Roller, uh, most people have, including myself, had never heard of the Mithridatic world and the kingdom of Pontos, I believe is what it's called. Um, yeah. And so I guess my first question is just why do you why did you feel like you wanted to write this book and and uh, and and learn more about and spread this knowledge about this uh, this kingdom? Well, the kingdom of Pontos, which, started in what's now northern Turkey on the Black Sea, but eventually spread to include essentially the entire Black Sea coast, was one of the major kingdoms of the last couple of centuries BC. And we tend to think of the spread of Rome as being something that happened during that period. And the dynasty in Pontus, especially under its last king, Mithridates VI, Mithridates the Great, was one of the major opponents of Roman expansionism. And like Hannibal earlier and Cleopatra later. And so I found this very interesting. And it's something that had not been written about, at least in English, in any kind of detail recently. So I thought it was a, a period of ancient history of the second and first centuries BC that deserved further interest and further exploration. And that's basically what drew me to the topic. Interesting, interesting. So I guess starting off, uh, maybe we should talk about the origins of this kingdom or this civilization. Um, and I, I read in the description in a, a little bit when I was doing some preliminary research that um, some of the origins and stuff were connected into Greek myth and the legend of Jason and the Golden Fleece and and that kind of thing. So I guess, can you just talk a little bit about um, how this uh, how this culture originated and kind of what their founding myths were and things like that? Well, let's start with Jason and the Golden Fleece, which is one of the earliest myths in the whole range of Greek mythology. It's about a bunch of guys who got together from somewhere in central Greece, went out into the Black Sea and ended up in the area of Colchis, which is the southeastern corner of the Black Sea. It's modern Georgia, essentially now. It may represent an early search for uh, wealth, uh, the golden fleece, but of course it gets tangled up in traditional stories about myth and about uh, relationships between the adventurer and the local princess and so forth and so forth. It's a very complex tale, but this established the whole Black Sea area as a place of interest, a place of wealth, and a place of riches. The Greeks 
and people along its coast were forever interested in. Uh, whether or not there was a lot of wealth in that area, uh, we don't know, although the Golden Fleece story is certainly uh, significant just as, as a formula. And so if we can skip down hundreds of years now to the era of Alexander the Great in the fourth century BC, second half of the fourth century BC, when Alexander died suddenly in Babylon in 323 BC, he left no uh, rules for what would happen after he died. And so a whole bunch of local rulers and dynasts, people who were connected with Alexander, tried to grab pieces of Alexander's empire. And it's out of this that the kingdom of Pontus, which as I said, is North Central Asia Minor, North Central Turkey, uh, came into being. It was kind of a power vacuum. A local ruler, the first Mithridates, came to power at that time down towards around 300 BC, and the kingdom developed from that time on. Okay. How, how was the kingdom? It looked to me like that uh, this culture was sort of influenced by both the Greek world and the Persian world in, the, in sort of multiple different civilizations. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the culture of, of this empire or this kingdom? Well, what you said is very true. It's kind of a hybrid Greek-Persian empire had covered all of Asia Minor. And of course, this is well known. They tried to gain a foothold in Greece, but were not successful. Right. So before Alexander, the area of Asia Minor, including the future kingdom of Pontus, was Persian territory. But there was a longstanding Greek heritage there as well. And so these rulers who came to power after Alexander's death tried as much as possible to play it in every way possible. They tried to assert a Persian heritage because the regions had been under Persian rule for a couple of centuries. They tried to assert a Greek heritage because Greek culture and Greek history was very important. And so the first Mithridates claimed, uh, rightly or wrongly, that he was descended from the famous Persian king, Xerxes, Darius, and those kings. Whether or not he was, we'll never know, but it certainly was a good selling point to suggest on the one hand that he was carrying on the hundreds of years old tradition of the Persian empire, but at the same time, he was picking up on the legacy of Alexander, which was a Greek Macedonian legacy, and trying to bring them both together and to create a, a hybrid existence. Okay, okay, interesting. So, and this was happening um, during the third century BC, this was coming together? Yeah, Alexander died in 323, and so it's over the next 50 years, okay. down to about the 280s, that things begin to coalesce in terms of the successors of Alexander. Uh, you, you, you get the great kingdoms, you get the Ptolemies in Egypt, you get the Seleucids in Syria, but then you get a lot of smaller kingdoms scattered around because it was an immense power vacuum. As I said, Alexander left no information as to when he died, and he was only in his 30s when he died, so he probably didn't expect to die. Right. And so there was this immense power vacuum, and all of these petty rulers popped up, some more powerful than others, 
and it's into the early third century BC that things begin to settle down. Okay. Okay. And so can we pick it up from there then and just, I guess, can you talk a little bit about how this kingdom kind of evolved and uh, grew in, in power over the next, what, couple of hundred years? Yes, for the first uh, 150 years or so, it remains a, a minor kingdom. Its center is at Sinope, which is modern Sinop, on the Black Sea coast of, of Turkey, and there are good solid archaeological remains there that are currently being excavated. Mm. And it basically, to some extent, served as a buffer between the, the other major kingdoms. And for the first 150 years, there was a succession of rulers, practically all of whom were named Mithridates. They married into the great powers of the time, so they created a dynasty. Their daughters and sons married into other dynasties, and they consolidated a very solid position. It was a good location because there were uh, mineral resources in the area, there were agricultural resources, and for hundreds of years there had been trade routes going from the Levant, essentially Syria, Palestine, that area up to the Black Sea. And so the Mithridatic kings, the kingdom of Pontus was able to capitalize on that and territory gradually expanded. I think we have to remember that in antiquity claims to territory are often more I lost uh, you there. I lost you there for a second, Professor Roller. Yeah. You said the territories are often what? Well, territories. Uh, there aren't solid frontiers in antiquity, usually, uh, like we have in in the modern world. People okay. say they're claiming a territory, and that may be part of their political ideology, more than anything else. But the fact remains that the Pontic Kingdom kind of gradually grew and spread over. Uh, northern Turkey during the next 150 years. As I said, they made alliances with the other kingdoms, so they became uh, part of the major powers of the era. But really, much of what happened to make it famous didn't happen until the last king of Pontus, Mithridates VI, Mithridates the Great, came to power in the 130s BC. Okay. Okay, and so that, and so, okay, so that was Mithridates the sixth, and it sounded like he was someone who became quite an adversary for uh, the growing um, Roman civilization. Is that, am I correct in saying that? Yes, by the time Mithridates the Great came to power, the Romans were already advancing to his west. Uh, the Romans gained their first foothold in Greece. Uh, essentially at the end of the third century BC. And by the middle of the second century, they gained a foothold in Asia Minor, uh, in coastal Asia Minor. And so here are the Mithridatic kings, especially Mithridates V, the father of Mithridates the Great. And then Mithridates the Great, when he comes to power in the 130s, kind of looking to their west and seeing this great power coming closer and closer. Now, one thing we always have to remember in history is that we, to some extent, are at a disadvantage because we know how things are going to turn out. 
we know that Rome is eventually going to rule the world or the whole Mediterranean basis, but that wasn't inevitable in the second century BC. Rome was just another growing power. And, but nevertheless, it seemed to be coming closer and closer every year. And Mithridates VI, when he came to power, set himself up as an adversary, as you said, to Rome. He of course knew his history and he knew about a previous great adversary to Rome, Hannibal, mm. who was really just uh, less than a century previously. And of course, Hannibal in the long run had failed, but Mithridates said, I can check Roman power. I can succeed where Hannibal failed. And so that really becomes his own ideology at the century BC in setting himself up. He is going to be the person who keeps the Eastern Mediterranean world from becoming Roman. And we have to kind of put ourselves in the context of the era. We don't know what's going to happen. He may win, he may lose, but that's the ideology he establishes. Okay, okay, so this is the first century BC that we're talking about his reign. And uh, well, he starts at 130, so that's oh, second. Okay. Sure, sure, okay. Second. Last third of the second into the first. Okay, and what is what is the um, what is the status of, of of Rome and the Roman civilization at this point? It it hasn't become the uh, kind of the Roman Empire ruled by the Caesars and all of that yet, correct? So oh, no, uh, Rome is still a republic. Okay, and it has expanded from being a city state in the center of Italy, where Rome is today to controlling all of Italy, and then getting involved with the Carthaginians, including Hannibal, which brings them control of the uh, Western Mediterranean, of the Iberian Peninsula, of parts of North Africa. And at first they seemed uninterested in what was happening in the Eastern Mediterranean. But one thing that certainly tipped the balance was that Hannibal, after being defeated uh, by the Romans came to the Eastern Mediterranean and began to stir up anti-Roman trouble. He traveled from royal court to royal court. He may even have gone to the Mithridatic court and kind of said, won't you help me get those Romans? And so this made the Romans turn east. And so by the time Mithridates the Great came to power in the Wadis, Rome controlled the Western Mediterranean, but was just beginning to expand into the Eastern Mediterranean. And it's very much like some of the modern colonial wars, when you get one foot in an area, it just kind of goes on and on and on and never stops. And so once Rome developed a policy that the Greek world was of interest to them, they just continued becoming involved more and more in the Greek world, first in the Greek peninsula proper, and then in the Greek states in Asia Minor, which by about the time of the accession of Mithridates the Great, brings Roman territory right up against Pontus. And this, of course, is a matter of concern. Where are the Romans going to go next? Right. Okay. Okay. So in staying on Mithridates the Great for a moment, um, it, it looked to me like he was sort of uh, the, the overarching figure of this kingdom that people 
talk about and want to write about and, and that kind of thing, or the most well-known figure to come out of this kingdom. Do, how do we know what he was like? Or, um, you know, is he mostly uh, known because he was kind of had some success in holding back the Roman expansion? Um, just well, what else do we know about him? Yeah, we have some good biographical material, although very little from his own day. It's mostly from the Roman period, which, of course, again, brings us to the factor that the people who were writing about Mithridates much later knew what was going to happen. But right. we, we, we know the man fairly well. Uh, we, we have a, a fair amount of writing with him. He seems to have been a very interesting personality. Uh, he was a well-educated person. We don't know how but we know that he was uh, exceedingly adept. He allegedly spoke over 20 languages more than anybody did in antiquity. He was capable in pharmacology and in botany, which is often an interest of royalty at this time because the biggest danger that royalty has to face is getting poisoned. Mm, okay. And so there are quite a few kings out there who become experts in uh, pharmacology and botany. He seems to have done a lot of plant research and so forth, uh, hybridization of plants, creating new plants. He created various kinds of antidotes to poisons. One which was called Mithridatium was, is still known today actually, although it may not be exactly what he had in mind. So he was a diverse and complex character that's one reason why he attracted interest, one reason why an early modern art and plays and opera and so on about Mithridates. Mm. But at the same time, he was an astute political and military leader, and he was on the throne for 60 years. Wow. So he was able to influence the happenings in his part of the world for a very long time. And he spent those 60 years unsuccessfully trying to hold the Roman advance and to set himself up as the great opponent of Rome, just as Cleopatra was going to do a generation after he died. So he's, he's a fascinating character and we know enough about him. We have descriptions of him uh, that we can kind of see what the person is like which is not always the case with people in antiquity. Right. Uh, we know what they did, but we often don't know how they thought. But here with Mithridates, we seem to have a little of that. Interesting. So is that, uh, when you are writing this book, um, in terms of the sources and how you are able to kind of piece all this together and, and make sense of it all, are most of the, the best sources coming from Roman historians, uh, in the centuries afterward? I mean, how, how, what was the source, the sourcing like, and are there archeological, uh, is, is there much archeological information about this civilization? Well, a little of both. Uh, to talk about the literary sources first, we have uh, sources that are essentially from the Roman period. Uh, they're in Greek because even in the Roman period, a lot of historical writing was still done in Greek but we, we do have a detailed account of the uh, Mithridatic kingdom by a name, man named Appian, who was writing about AD uh, 100. Mm -hmm. And it, it's really remarkably detailed, but of course it's 150 years after Mithridates died. 
And a lot had happened in that 150 years, which influences Appian's take on it. And we have other lesser sources. We have practically nothing that's uh, contemporary. We have a few comments by Cicero, who was involved in the political maneuvering against Mithridates, but practically everything that we have is much later. Archaeologically, in the kingdom of Pontus, there, there are all kinds of archaeological remains in Pontus and around into the Black Sea area, the Crimea, the Northern Black Sea, uh, where, uh, since things opened up in the Soviet Union and Russia, we in the West are learning a lot more about the physical remains of, of the north side of the Black Sea where the Russians have been working for a long time, but we didn't know very much about it. But now we know a great deal. So, so we have a good amount of physical material accompanies the literary material. And, and that helps in putting together this extensive picture. Interesting, okay, okay. So I, uh, just to remind listeners, we're talking to Professor Dwayne Roller about his 2020 book, Empire of the Black Sea, The Rise and Fall of the Mithridatic World, which is available now. Um, so I guess my next question is, what ended up happening to this uh, kingdom? What was the decline? Uh, and what ended up happening to Mithridates the Great? Well, uh, Mithridates, as I said, was a very capable person. But unfortunately, he lived at a time when his opponents were more capable than he was. And over a series of nearly 40 years, there were various engagements between him and the Romans. And sometimes the Romans acted with a great deal of ineptitude because this was the period that the Roman society was changing. This was moving into the period of the evolution of Rome from a republic to an empire when famous people like Cicero and Julius Caesar and Pompey the Great were becoming leaders of Rome and trying to work out a system so that Rome could evolve from a Italian city-state to a world empire, often not very successfully. Uh, every person I just mentioned uh, Cicero, Julius Caesar, Pompey the Great, none of them died naturally. Mark Antony didn't die naturally. So it was a very chaotic period in Rome, which gave Mithridates hope. He saw the Romans kind of shooting themselves in the foot all the time and said, I can take control of the situation. I can push the Romans out of Asia. I can create a system that is a non-Roman Asia that is Asia Minor, Turkey, essentially. Yeah. And so in a series of wars, he went against the Romans, but did somewhat worse each time because it's been said you never defeat the Romans twice. That once you defeat the Romans, they learn why they were defeated and come back better prepared. And that's essentially what happened to Mithridates over the period from about 100 BC down to 60 BC, Mithridates, even though he'd expanded his kingdom essentially to include the entire perimeter of the Black Sea, was nevertheless kind of pushed into a weaker and weaker position. He saw himself as the new Hannibal. He saw himself as the person who would succeed. And in fact, he even was talking about invading Italy, uh, again, replicating what Hannibal 
even from the Black Sea up the Danube and down into the Italian peninsula from the north, which sounds uh, totally unfeasible, but that again reflects that he thought the Romans were a lot weaker than they were. So gradually Mithridates is kind of blocked in on all sides. He moves toward the east, he makes an alliance with the uh, king of Armenia, his daughter marries the king of Armenia. There are thoughts that he would move in that direction. He of course had gained territory up in the north, but the Romans had one thing Mithridates didn't, and that is a much better supply of manpower. Uh, the Romans could draw on all of Italy to fight Mithridates. Mithridates, even though he does seem to be very good at levying troops, Nevertheless, there was a slow decline of the path. And probably, as so often happens, the locals in Asia Minor in his kingdom probably got fed up with this constant fighting, with this constant levying of troops to fight an enemy that didn't seem terribly relevant. And so by the 70s BC, Mithridates seems to be slowly declining although he still is exceedingly popular, he still is seen as the savior. This is not very far from the period that we're familiar with in the Bible of the coming of the Messiah. Mm. And that may not seem immediately relevant, but there was a lot of talk from about the time of Mithridates to the time of Jesus about some great savior who would come and save the world. Of course, in the Bible, it takes on a religious component, but it certainly had a political component that someone was out there who would keep the Romans away. And so Mithridates was seen as the great savior, the one who would save Asia Minor from the Romans. Cleopatra was seen that way a generation or so later. So this kind of kept him going year after year after year, but in a kind of steadily deteriorating uh, position. And the Roman leaders became more and more capable and more and more interested in really curbing his power. Okay. So did he ultimately, did, uh, did was the kingdom just conquered by Rome? Was he killed? Um, what happened? Yeah. Well, eventually, getting down into the 60s now, okay. eventually things got so bad in Pontus that he had to retreat. He, uh, going to his uh, son-in-law, the king of Armenia, and the king of Armenia was sharp enough to realize he shouldn't have anything to do with Mithridates because that would mean a Roman invasion of Armenia. Yeah. So he made a retreat around the eastern side of the Black Sea. Again, kind of a great heroic journey, which takes you up into the Caucasus country, some of the highest and most rugged country known in antiquity. And he establishes himself up in the northern side of the Black Sea, where he thought he would be safe from the Romans. Meanwhile, the Romans take over Pontus and declare it a Roman province. Mm. The pro, pro, excuse me, the province of Pontus. But again, as I said earlier, remember, some of these claims to territory are more on paper than anything else. Right. So here's Mithridates 
side of the Black Sea. Pompey the Great, who's the most powerful person in Rome at this time, chases him. But Pompey has a lot of other interests going. And Pompey starts up and he gets caught in the Caucasus Mountains in the winter. And the, Mount, the Caucasus summit was the highest peak known in antiquity. Mm. And he decides this really isn't worth it. And so he pulls out and goes toward other things. And Mithridates simply tries to set up what amounts to a government in exile in the, the Crimea. And this is where he formulates his plans for invading Italy from the north, going up the Danube and down into Italy. And this is where he devotes a lot of his time to scientific gardening and to dealing with various antidotes and other things of here, but he's still out there and he still has a lot of power. And when he starts talking so seriously about invading Italy, this means that he loses his last bit of credibility. And so one day he looks out from the window of his palace and finds that the troops are declaring his son, a man named Pharnakes, king. Mm. And he realizes that it's all over then. And he either commits suicide or has a slave kill him. And Pharnakes is declared the new king of a reduced kingdom of Pontus, basically only on the north side of the Black Sea. And the Romans effectively inherit everything else. Wow. So Mithridates the Great, the plan that he was taught, I mean, he's already been sort of pushed into exile, like you described, and then he's talking about invading Italy. And so it's just the, he kind of had, I guess, in the, in the minds of his troops, he had lost touch with reality to an extent about what was possible or what, you know, um, he, he just, yeah, like you said, he had lost credibility. That's the explanation. Yeah, that's certainly part of it. Uh, the logistics of invading Italy would be almost impossible. Yeah. Uh, there, there still were things unknown about central Europe and it was thought it was a lot easier to get from the upper Danube that is say around Budapest or Vienna down into Italy, and you have to go over rugged territory and so forth to do that. But he's playing Hannibal. He, he, he's saying, I'm going to invade Italy, conveniently forgetting that it didn't work for Hannibal. Yeah. But uh, that, that's what he's saying. And obviously his inner circle thinks the old man has gone bonkers by this time. And they realize that their only chance of survival is to get rid of him. And so King, and of course, when in, in antiquity, in a pre-Christian world, when all hope is lost, committing suicide is considered an honorable way to end it all. And we certainly have that. We have it with Antony and Cleopatra, of course. And so uh, that, that really, he had nowhere else to go. And he, he obviously did not really want to simply live in exile. And he probably would have been done in by his inner circle if he hadn't done the deed himself. Interesting. Interesting. So after his death, uh, is that sort of, is that kind of the end of the story as it, as it relates to the kingdom of Pontus as a, as its own independent, uh, place? Well, there are a lot of twists and turns and Pharnakes, his son, as I said, rules an independent kingdom mm. under close Roman supervision for quite a while. 
and uh, the part of Pontus, the traditional part of Pontus, uh, becomes Roman territory, and then it's reestablished under a dynasty. The Romans had this policy, which they certainly tried with Mithridates, but he was too aggressive, of establishing kingdoms around their perimeter. Because if you had a local kingdom at the perimeter of the Roman Empire, you could again play it both ways. The king or queen would have owed power to the Romans. So the monarch was beholden to the Romans. But as a local, the monarch could relate to the locals. And the policy worked with varying degrees of success. Probably the best known example of this kind of allied king is Herod the Great of Judea right. in a slightly later generation. And so basically what the Romans did was to set up a dynasty in Pontus and in the Crimea that could rule locally with <clears throat> close Roman supervision and essentially keep an eye on Roman uh, needs in that particular area, but say to the people, look, I'm one of you, so I, I can keep the Romans in check. And sometimes it worked, uh, sometimes it didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, with Herod the Great, it worked quite well for a while, <clears throat> but he eventually seems to have gone insane and everything fell apart. Uh, with Cleopatra, it worked reasonably well, but again, things took strange turns when Antony got involved and, and that eventually fell apart. Usually these allied kingdoms eventually became Roman provinces. But I think Pontus, especially the Crimea part of Pontus, was so remote that the Romans really didn't want to send their own people up there. I see. And so it, it lasted uh, as an independent kingdom, really, for most of the Roman period. And it, the, the, the allied kingdom of Pontus, and we know uh, descendants of Mithridates who uh, were still active in the area generations later. Hmm. Okay. So do we know much about, uh, I'm trying to imagine a little bit about this kingdom kind of at its height and uh, mm -hmm. were, there, were there cities that uh, we can point to that, that, um, that were comparable to other cities in the Mediterranean world? Yes, well, as I said, Sinope was the capital and okay. archeological evidence shows a flourishing and prospering city there. And I think uh, in many cases, the demographics that even exist today reflect what they were in antiquity. Uh, nothing was as big as Rome or Alexandria or even Athens, but certainly it was an economy with a certain amount of urbanization. And then probably as always, most of the population was in the countryside. Uh, there, there was a great deal of agricultural wealth in Pontus and they were able to export things. And even in the Northern Black Sea, grain was exported to the uh, Mediterranean world. And there were mineral resources that were, were used. And probably as is always the case, there was kind of a continuous peasantry that lived out in the villages and fields and were separated from the great political events of the era. And Romanization, did bring certain things, roads, for example, mm. and uh, better water supply, which helped uh, the areas prosper. But of course, 
it, it's a world that's very difficult for us to understand this pre-industrial revolution world right. uh, where uh, technology was simple, where the only means of getting around was walking or if you're on a coast by ship. It was a, in one sense, a simple life, but in another sense, these were people who were just like us biologically and were able to produce great art and great ideas. But it's a very different environment. And I know I often uh, have trouble explaining to my students that, yes, people could think in a world before computers. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, these people had brains and could do exciting and wonderful things, but they didn't have the technological help that we have today. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so what would you, how would you characterize the legacy of the kingdom of Pontus and Mithridates the Great? And uh, I think you've touched on, touched on some of this already, but, um, and you're sort of helping contribute to that legacy by, by writing this book. But what is, what is your kind of takeaway? What do you see, you know, what do you see them as? Well, uh, as, as I kind of alluded to previously, we see him as one of the three great opponents of Rome. The last time that the Romans really encountered opposition, uh, first with Hannibal, late third century, then Mithridates, early second, uh, first century, and then Cleopatra a generation later. All three of these people, of course, did not know that Rome would eventually win and saw themselves as the alternative. And after the first century BC, Rome had no serious opposition, or if they did have opposition, it was like with the barbarians in Central Europe, the Germans, the Goths and others, and a realization that this was territory they probably shouldn't be in anyway. Yeah. So they, they, they would a perimeter of the empire that was fairly stable for hundreds of years. But with Mithridates and the other two, there still was a, serious hope that the world might go in different directions hmm. and science fiction authors have dealt with alternate universes that if Mithridates or Cleopatra won how the world might be different today and that was the last time that something like that would have happened so that's certainly one impo important point it's a real change in the dynamics of the world once these people are gone we're on the path to the all-encompassing Roman Empire, which is very much the legacy that we are still in today. Yes. The second thing, of course, is the interesting personality of Mithridates, that he wasn't just a warrior king. He was an educated person who contributed culturally. We probably know something about him, even if he wasn't involved <coughs> in his political effort because of his writings. We know that he wrote, none of them survived, but people quote them. Uh, his writings on botany and on gardening and things like that, his, his knowledge of languages. He was an interesting personality and he influenced the Romans in that way too. Hmm. Uh, the Roman gardens that we have some remnants of in and around Rome and we know about from Pompeii and so on. After Mithridates, the Romans got very interested in gardening. And we know that Mithridates' books came to Rome. They were Some of them were translated into Latin. And so he actually had a cultural influence 
in the direction of Roman culture. And we think, as, as we see in movies often of, of Romans and their villas with their beautiful gardens, a lot of that goes back to the influence of Mithridates. Yeah. So he's a fascinating character, but I wanted in my book not just to write about Mithridates, but to write about where he came from. And so that's basically why I started with Alexander with the beginning of the Mithridatic dynasty and carry it on for this 250 years or that the dynasty grew culminating in this fascinating personality. And of course, even though I only deal with it in passing and it's not really my field, the fact that he was picked up by so many people in early modern times uh, in terms of dramas, in terms of artworks mm -hmm. and the like, that too means that he had a remarkable influence on modern culture. Okay, wow. Um, so I did have one kind of more minor question. Uh, we've looked a lot at some of the mythological heroes on this podcast, including Achilles. And on um, on my website, I, I've written some articles and things about the cults of Achilles. And I know that one of them was uh, one of the areas that his cults were really pronounced was around the Black Sea area. And I was just curious if you came across any of that or if any of that was from this uh culture um, that we're talking about now, or was that something different? Well, there is a story that Achilles was rescued from death at Troy by his mother, the goddess Thetis, and his body was spirited up into the Northern Black Sea region, mm. and that he had some kind of afterlife there. And so when Greeks, either when Greeks reached there or after they reached there, they saw this area as one connected with Achilles. Now there always was a tendency when previously unknown areas to fit their own mythological history into these unknown areas, to see local cults as versions of their own cults. A similar story is the story of Iphigenia, who was sacrificed by her father Agamemnon to get proper winds to go to Troy, but no, she was spirited away and she ended up on the North shore of the Black Sea. Mm -hmm. There's this tendency toward religious assimilation. You go into an area, the people have their own local cults and the Greeks say, oh, this is just like our cult of this or our cult of that. And so a Greek inspired cult develops in all of these areas. Now, Mithridates was very astute, Mithridates the Great and his predecessors, and they knew that to play on this and to support Greek cults and even Roman cults when they came along was to their advantage, a kind of blending together of all kinds of cults, which isn't really that common today. Religion seemed to go down their own independent paths. Right. Uh, but blending together, seeing all religions as part of a universal whole. And so God X in the barbarian territory is really their version of Zeus or Jupiter or somebody like that. And yes, the, the Pontic kings did make good use of this as they made use of the Jason and the Golden Fleece story and kind of side myths connected with all of that. Uh, one, one of the uh, parts of the Golden Fleece story is that Jason, when he came back to the Greek world, went up the Danube 
and crossed over into the Adriatic. Well, who who do we know who's thinking about doing the same thing? Yeah. Obviously, Mithridates all of this material and used it to his advantage. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Um, well, uh, we've been talking about uh, the 2020 book, Empire of the Black Sea, The Rise and Fall of the Mithridatic World by Professor Dwayne Rohr of The Ohio State University. Um, Professor Rohr, is there anything else that you want to add? Or um, uh, I'm assuming that your, your books and things are all available on Amazon? Uh, I think so, yes. Okay, okay. Is there yeah. any other place people should go to see your work and uh, any of the research you're doing? No, uh, I, I am currently uh, working on things connected with ancient geography. Mm. And these will probably be a little more in the scholarly area than the Empire of the Black Sea is. But obviously, when you get involved in people who are at the fringes of the world, uh, at least from an ancient point of view, you will begin to think of the geographical environment, which, of course, influenced the way people think. Uh, the north side of the Black Sea was a long way north uh, for people from the Mediterranean, and it was a hostile environment. Uh, Greeks were astounded that the ocean could freeze and there could be days without freezing. And so that very much influences people. And I'm kind of working in, the, in that kind of direction now. Interesting. When are you thinking that some of that work might be published? Oh, who knows? It's a long and laborious process. <laughs> if you set deadlines, uh, you just get into trouble. Yeah. And of course, even once you've finished writing, it takes a year or two for the production mm. uh, process to go on. We'll stay in touch. And as long as we're still, I'm trying to start doing this podcast weekly. And so uh, as long as we're still doing it, we'll share info about that work as well. And in the meantime, uh, listeners who are interested can uh, check out Empire of the Black Sea on Amazon. Um, thanks for talking to us today. And I will send you a link to the episode as soon as we post it. Okay. Thank you so much. It's been right. my pleasure. Thanks. See ya. Thank you. Thanks to Derek Feister for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Until next time.